Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast based on writers sitting around drinking coffee or red coffee and talking about writing, publishing, the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, but we don't swear a lot either, so please consider us PG-13. Your hosts today are Karen and Chaz Frenchley and myself, John Schmidt. We're talking with Jennifer Nestoiko. This is episode 146, interview with Jennifer Nestoiko. Well, welcome and hello, Jennifer. Well, hello. Glad to be here. And we're glad to have you here. I wanted to have you on the show for three reasons. First of all, you've got some new stories coming out, which I find exciting. Second of all, I wanted to explore with you a little bit about your teaching of writing and a little bit about some of the disability writing you've been doing. So let's start with the happy news, and I'd like happy news from everyone. What have you got coming out? Well, right now, hopefully by the end of the month or the beginning of next month, there's going to be an anthology in the Midnight Bites series that's put out by Crone Girls Press. It's called Objectified, and so I have this novelette, and it should be coming out, as I said, near the end of the month, beginning of next month. And at the beginning of this month, there was a piece of flash fiction that features Ents in the Santa Cruz Mountains Mm. that was put out in non-binary review number 27, which is put out by Zoetic Press. And then in December, I have a story that is making its appearance in the Lesbian Historic Motif Project. So, and that will also be recorded as a, a podcast recording as well as print. So, and that's available online so that those three are very exciting things that that's what's coming out currently for me. Did the, the, the novelettes in an anthology of three, is, is there a theme to the anthology? Yes, it's haunted objects. So uh, Crone Girls Press publishes either dark fantasy and or horror anthologies. And so I've actually been published in two of those anthologies so far. And then this one, and those are anthologies with shorter stories, more writers. And then this one is just the three of us, but it is Haunted Objects. Very cool. Have you have you, have you read the other two? I haven't yet. And I'm really excited because I know that one of them, just the description of it sounds really intriguing. And it's kind of a horror feminist thing. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And I think it's one of those that'll make you cringe and laugh at the same time, which it sounds promising. Yes, that does sound promising. Right. And I based mine off of a ring that, you know, it's kind of unfair actually to the actual owner, but it's a ring that my grandmother had from her first fiance, which I found out about just a few years ago that she actually had a fiance and he died. He was a pilot and he died in a a plane crash doing training exercises during World War II. And so that kind of gets incorporated into the story. Yeah, exactly the same thing happened to my mother's fiance in the war. Yeah. Yeah. So she used to have nightmares about what it was like for him to die um, in that crash. And so, but I didn't even know that she had been engaged. It was a a week or two weeks before their wedding was supposed to happen. Oh. Oh. And so I, I created, it's not exactly their story, but I created some of the same, you know, I use the ring as my yeah. my focus for the inspiration for the yeah. object. Yeah, and unfortunately, it's somewhat timely given the war going on. Yeah. Um, 
So maybe by the time this episode airs, it will be over <laughs> in a good way. So I, I'm fond of Ukraine. I haven't been there, but I'm fond of it. Nestoiko is a Ukrainian name. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. It's a Yugoslavian spelling of a Ukrainian name, but it is a Ukrainian name. <laughs> that's okay. that's okay. That's okay. What are you working on right now? What's what's going to be next? You've got these all coming out, so 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 that's like old news now, isn't it? And now <laughs> now what's next? I mean, what's the next? You know, I have a smattering of things because, you know, I I've been catching things like by the tail or the toenail as they try to escape me. I have a long commute, and. During my commute, it that seems to be the quietest time of my day. And that's when things come to me. And then by the time I get out of the car and go in, even if I've recorded it you know, on a recorder, it, it starts to dissipate. And so I've caught a couple things and I'd like to get back to them. But I do have a couple of finished stories that I'd like to find homes for. And one is a story about... This couple, one of them, she's a retired dragon fighter and is currently doing an equally scary job, which is teaching high school. And, <laughs> oh. and she's she's in the middle of teaching one day and a dragon shows up with a vendetta and it's huge and everything. And her girlfriend is a baker. And ultimately, things are resolved by a very quick and clever application of puff pastry. And... <laughs> Does th this have anything to do with either a Wizard's Guide to Defensive Baking by Ursula Vernon T. Kingfisher or the Greenwing and Dark novel where Mr. Greenwing kills a dragon during a cake baking competition with his offset spatula and frosting knife? Well, that just must be a zeitgeist because uh, I haven't read those and didn't even know, actually. I, I think I've heard the first title, but I haven't read them. But it was... I was having a very frustrating day because sometimes when I'm really tired or the, the pain is a lot and, you know, cause I have chronic pain and some mobility issues. And in the evening, sometimes I can't, can't always get the right words. And this is fun when I have an evening class I'm teaching. Cause sometimes I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to say. I will tell my boys at times, you know, Hey, put your plate in the sink. When it comes out, put your plate in the trash. Cause I can't, retrieved the right word. And I was having one of those evenings was really frustrated. And I got this idea and I started writing it because the ex dragon fighter has that exact problem. And so, you know, her girlfriend comes home, she starts saying things like cabbages and, and the girlfriend and she points at the bedroom and the girlfriend's like, okay. And she goes into the bedroom and there's like little, little goblins who are burrowing into their bedding and, and destroying it and sending feathers everywhere. <laughs> but she, she just, she can't say goblins. She says cabbages, but the girlfriend's used to it. She texts because I can, and many people have this, they can text and write. They can type words that they, they need, but they can't say them. The disconnect is somehow verbal. And so that's kind of, you know, out of my frustration of not being able to find the right words one evening, I decided I got this idea for a story and I wrote it out. You're writing about aphasia here, which some would consider a disability. My knowledge of you says that you are actually, for want of a better term, out there on the front lines of writing about disabilities. Can you speak about that a little? Well, I, I was a couple of decades ago. I My master's thesis was, okay, my working title for it was Crippled Chicks, but that's <laughs> when it actually got titled. It's 
Tales from the Bedside, Women with Disabilities in American Fiction. And what I looked at is how the disabled body, female body is constructed in fiction and kind of what that meaning is. And at the time there was almost no disability studies in literature. And so I had to do some of my own research and, and do some cross-disciplinary studies with sociology texts. And it turns out that, you know, I really should have worked harder to get that published. And by worked harder, I meant tried to get that published. Yeah. Because now there's this whole disability studies that is very active and, and interesting. And I could have been at the forefront of that. And I do know that at the University of Maine, it's one of the thesis, uh, master's thesis is that gets requested frequently. And so they are very adept at making copies of it. Hmm. So that was, you know, that, that was something that was very interesting to me because it appeared that in most stories, the disabled female body is not, it has more baggage than just that this character has a disability and this is how they act with it. It's, they become symbolic for something else. And I, I dare say that's the same for, for male bodies and, and those that are non-binary. The disability is symbolic of something. You know, Louisa May Alcott, she has Jack and Jill, where Jill becomes disabled and eventually she becomes able-bodied again, but it teaches her how to be an adult. It, it's kind of her, her entryway, her lesson for these life lessons that she'll need as a woman. And you have other, other things in the Bleeding Heart by Marilyn French, the disabled woman is the typical passive woman that feminism was trying to fight against as an image. And actual women at the time with disabilities were being told, no, we don't want to tell your stories because it's so anti-feminist. You're, you're disabled, you're passive, you're, you know, you're the antithesis of a feminist. And this was being said to actually disabled researchers, researchers with disabilities. So there, it's a very interesting thing. And in my own writing, I try to make it more of a lived experience than a symbolic experience. When, when I became disabled, I tried to write a story that had a disabled woman character in it. And I couldn't. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that was because I really, I really had a hard time because I was a second degree black belt and I was in great shape and mm -hmm. suddenly I was too tired and, you know, I, I was, I was disabled fairly recently. And so since I have had HSCT therapy and no longer have MS, even though I still have some of the, you know, some of the nerve damage left, I actually wrote a character who had MS. Um, and the character told me he had MS. Right. And it's a black man. The story is a Bayesian theory of wishes, but it was very, it was hard for me, but it was also liberating for me to write about what it felt like and what it felt like to find out about what it was that was bothering me. And by the way, if any of you want to read a Bayesian theory of wishes, it is in Parsec Magazine, um, issue number two, which you can find on the internet. Yeah, but it's a fabulous story. Oh, thank you. I'd like to disagree with you, O Scholar Jennifer, for a second. I think the combination of disability and female outweighs the, the disability because there's a number of disabled male characters who the disability isn't that symbolic of. Uh, like, uh, without hesitation, I would say Long John Silver. Yeah. Or Captain Hook actually goes against my thesis, but I'm <laughs> in, in some ways, so does Long John Silver, because we have the trope of the 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 villain with a disabled body. 
and that's that's been a very strong trope for a long time in literature. So it it, beca- it has a little more weight than just well, Long John Silver's a pirate, so he lost his leg. It's the villain with a disability oh. pattern. And of course, and, there's Captain Ahab, and nobody can tell me he's not symbolic. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was the whale that was symbolic, but we don't know if the whale's disabled or even or whether it's male or female, really. <laughs> yeah. I, I did read the book, but I can't remember those details. But I do think you're right that in some ways the, the female body, which is often in literature imaged in ways that are that is also symbolic and not always true to the lived experience of being female, and, and then the disabled body, the combination is is particularly potent, which is part of why. I focused on that. I'm going to have to withdraw my comment because it's clear <laughs> that your scholarship versus my anecdote, your scholarship wins. So <laughs> that's is, what no. scholarship is for, John. I know that's what, what it's anecdotes for. are for. They are, I, they are there to be, you know, they are trailed like bait for the <laughs> academia to leap upon and cry, oh no, I know better than. And of course, well, Jen does. So speaking of which, Tell us about your third publication or your publication in the three, the one in the lesbian anthology. What's up with that? So Heather Rose Jones has a blog. It's a fantastic blog called the Lesbian Historic Motif Project. And so it also is a podcast. So she has a blog and she explores some of the scholarship on historical experiences of women in community or women who love women and some of the that exploration. She also has a podcast that she does regularly on the same subject, but on fifth Saturdays of the year, she has a fiction series. And she's been doing this for, I think, four or five years now. And that's a podcast and the the print transcript is also there. I have a story accepted for this year's fiction series for that. Congratulations. It's coming out in December. And that, and I've, I've actually um, had two other stories by her uh, accepted and, and in previous years used. And they're all a little bit different because one is a, a further telling of the side story of Hildeberg in Beowulf. And it's what oh. happens when she comes home and she meets up with her widowed childhood friend and they rather take up possibly where they left off. And it, it's that experience. They're both very different women now and they've been through a lot. And then the Second one is a story from a 14th century medieval story about a revenant baker who he, you know, he dies and they bury him and he keeps coming back trying to bake bread. And it's his, his wife and her neighbor and they, they, they keep trying to fight him off while he's coming back. You know, they get a dragon needs, for this purpose? Who needs, who needs grave dirt in your, your bread that your business is? And, and um, yeah, one of the characters uh, happens have a limp and it uses a crutch so she can beat him with that and then the third this story that's coming out in december is set in late 19th century boston and it's a woman who's a shut-in and it's done you know the letter writing style it's all letters from her to her dearest friend who is a famous singer and who is traveling and she's a shut-in and she doesn't travel and she can't go and see her perform. And it's her letters to her. So it's all told through that. So it should be very, I mean, that should lend itself nicely to being read for a podcast. And, you know, it's a fun voice to have embodied for a while. Nice. Um, yeah. But her friend never writes back? Well, we don't get those, but there is there are the clues that she has written back. 
Okay. Because it, it's mentioned in yeah. the letter. Oh, thank yeah. you so much for this, or I hear yeah. about this. So, but I wanted to keep the single voice throughout. Mm. Kind sure. of like Daddy Longlegs, if you've ever read Daddy Longlegs. It's, it's from the 19-teens, and it's a delightful story of an orphan girl who gets sent to college by oh. a sponsor. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Okay, I, I don't know this at all. Yeah, it's one of the books I inherited from my grandmother. It has a delightful little bit where she's writing, because she has to write to her sponsor, but she doesn't know him. And she calls him Daddy Longlegs because she yep. knows he's tall. And she's got a little bit of a sense of humor. But at one point, she and her friends go out for lunch and they get lobster and buckwheat pancakes for lunch. And it was 35 cents. <laughs> cheap. And I'm like, dear God. <laughs> the apprentices in, in Newcastle used to riot because they were being fed too much salmon. Uh-huh. Yeah. And and of course the the classic beef and oyster pie <laughs> is stuffed with oysters because oysters were poor man's food. Right. They were available cheap. Beef was expensive. Lobster was there was a law in Maine at one point at the turn of you know in the 19th century yeah. that you could not feed lobster to prisoners seven times a week. That you had I should hope not good luck. <laughs> Pirates to lobsters to uh, we've we've certainly exercised the peg leg. I'd like to focus on another aspect of your process, which is, can you just dis discuss a little, how does the teaching you do affect the writing you do? Do you find yourself having more structured writing? Does it, you know, how does it affect that? Well, I'm, I am, uh, I have taught creative writing and I am also a composition instructor at San Jose City College. And so I actually teach high school students in the middle college program at San Jose City College. And I teach college classes, college composition classes. So I, I have a good idea of you know, structure. And I think revision is, is one of the biggest things that is important in the whole process. And so I, I make use of that. My process, where teaching often comes in in my process is if I have a whole bunch of essays to grade, sometimes I write a story instead. Because <laughs> it was, it know, was all, sorry, it was it was always the rumor that Tolkien started the Hobbit because he was grading examinations and and he came across that blessed thing to any examiner, which is a blank sheet of paper. And he wrote on it in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit, and so on. I had no idea if it's true. I didn't ask him. I can well, believe it. I can absolutely believe it because the, the first story got published. I was sitting there going, I, I'm, I've been told by Karen, actually, that <laughs> I should try for this anthology. And I had an idea kind of form and blossom. And, and I was sitting in my classroom and I had papers to grade. And I wrote a story. Yay. And then later I edited it and worked with it and sent it in. Whereupon it got rejected from the anthology and it got rejected from a couple other things. And I wrote in and said, would it fit to one magazine, mm -hmm. online magazine, would it fit with next month's theme better? Mm -hmm. Because they had a theme every month and, and they'd said, look, it doesn't quite fit our theme. And they said, we're so glad you asked. Yes, it would. <laughs> so, and it's, it's out there online. So, and that is the one story of mine that is very specifically about disability. That, that one really explores some of those ideas. But I had 
I had papers to grade, so I wrote a story. Yes. Yeah. yeah no, I, I could totally sympathize. It's like having homework. It could mm-hmm. be. Same thing. It's like, oh, I must write a story because I have all of this homework, which involves writing to do. So, right. yeah. So I'll do a different kind. And Ooh, and exactly. I did get my papers graded, um, but sometimes I, I get inspired by that. I have to grade essays. Okay. So how do you, I mean, how do you juggle um, a career <laughs> in teaching particularly, which you know, run, famously overruns into your evenings and weekends, plus busy and I suspect rather noisy family, plus <laughs> being a writer. Where do, where do you fit the writing in? Nooks and crevices and, and wherever I can find it. And sometimes I just take a sledgehammer and open up some of those crevices and, and little nooks in the boulders Are there any holes of my in the ground? In a hole in the ground, wrote Jennifer. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer found a hole in the ground, tried to squeeze into it. And yeah, I, I hook in my cane to the hole in the ground and pull out the strange looking snake that lives there and then try to convince it to become my story. That's what I do. Maybe I get swallowed by the snake or maybe I swallow the snake and, and it comes out from one end or another to, into a story. My writing process is sometimes filled with um, strange metaphors because I have had I wrote a poem once on how I shed stories like a virus, like a disease, like dead skin. Like I a walk snake. around and, and shed poetry and <laughs> everyone, you know, needs to get out yeah. of it. Yeah, we haven't we haven't talked about your poetry yet. Tell us about your poetry. I write some. Yes. Cool. <laughs> you write them tell us a little more about your poetry. <laughs> a little more. What do you write them about and who do you perform them for? So I have written a great deal of poetry that I've performed through my hobby in the Society of Creative Anachronism. And, and so I've written quite a few poems that are in a medieval format, the Rhyme Royal, Triolets, you know, all of that, sonnets. I finally learned how to do a sonnet, and it took me years to figure it oh. out. I, I don't naturally, when I read sonnets, they're not always done well, because it seems that I have an affinity for Anglo-Saxon style alliterative poetry. Mm-hmm. Ah often starts with a stress at the beginning, yeah. which yes. a sonnet yeah. does not. And so once I figured out how to do like pickup words at the beginning of a sonnet, now I can write a sonnet quite nicely, but it was <laughs> terrible for the longest time, you know, how Brown <laughs> found her, her iambic pentameter groove. I, I do write Anglo-Saxon style poetry and sometimes in badly translated Anglo-Saxon because it's been a while since those classes. So I know my grammar is really bad, but I do it. And I once, actually, at one point, I think I had papers to grade. I translated the beginning of modern English's I'll Stop the World and Melt With You into, into uh, Anglo-Saxon. Oh, that, that is awesome. I, also, also, I, I, see a, I see a recurring theme here about you having papers to grade. <laughs> I have some to grade right now. But Thank I you. have, but I, I thought it would be fun to turn modern English into old English. Mm. I like that. I like that. I also like the idea of your papers degrading too. You <laughs> um, probably do too. So yeah, but my process, you know, sometimes, as I said, I have to carve out the time, and yeah. sometimes I have to catch things while they're there because they fade, and and you can yeah. still catch them. You can still write something from them, but they're never ever what they were originally. And even if I yeah, sit down in a moment. That's universal, surely. Yeah. I mean, you know, every writer sits down at the keyboard with this bright, glorious city in their head, 
um, yep. right at sort of tumble down shack. Yep. Children's book or young adult book. It's a novel, but called A Necklace of Fallen Stars by Beth Hill Gardner. No. One of my favorite books in the whole wide world, aside from Lord of the Rings. In it, it's a it's a runaway princess. She's had to run away because it's dangerous where she was. And there's a wizard after her. And she's a storyteller. She's She tells stories, especially in the poorer sections of the city. And so she's on the run. But as her adventures go, she tells stories. And the stories are in the book. So you not only get the story of her, but you get all the stories she tells. And one of them is called The Colors of the Wind. And it is exactly about that being able to hear the song of the moon and see the colors of the wind and all of this as an artist. And then even if you, even if you capture it in a poem or a story, it's never the same. You never fully yep. capture it. Yep. And I love that story. That, that has been one of my signature stories to tell back in college. I would tell it around you know, the beach fires that we would do. And we even named our house my senior year colors for Colors of the Wind. Because I'd like to read that. Yeah, I'm, absolutely. I'm, do, do the stories engrossed within the novel sort of reflect back on the action of the novel that contains them? Not completely until the end. I mean, there's a great story of, about a palindrome, a boy with a name with a palindrome and a wizard's preying on him because he's got a spell that requires the blood of uh, a palindrome. Uh, and, uh, you know, but, yeah. but the last one, which is the title story, so A Necklace of Fallen Stars, yep. does actually play into it perfectly. So it, that ends with that. But it's, it's really kind of a cool book. It's, it sounds lovely. She also wrote a book called uh, Murder for Her Majesty, which is about a girl uh, during Queen Elizabeth's time yes. whose father is murdered. And uh, it's a great book. She hides in the local boys choir at the local cathedral. Uh -huh. So with all these stories, I realize you have so much time, but have you um, started <laughs> a novel or considered novels? I have considered novels. I'm not, I'm not at that point yet. Previously to the last, I don't know, five or seven years, I can't remember when I first got These Eyes Are Not My Own published, I was mostly writing poetry. And I had written some short stories, but I hadn't really made a stab at that. This person I know, who I'd <laughs> mentioned before, said, you should do this. A number of stories that haven't gone anywhere yet that I want to find homes for. I've got stories that are halfway in the works, like I have kind of a follow-up to Flannery O'Connor's story that I'm working on from favorite one by her. But, you know, I have these things. And so probably at some point I'll morph into a larger attempt. But between, you know, teaching, I'm working essentially, I'm, I'm working a full-time job, the adjunct job. So that's half-time. But my full-time job was another program was added to it this year. Mm -hmm. That was an online school. And I'm one of the accreditation coordinators at San Jose City College, and we are working on our institutional self-evaluation report for accreditation. <laughs> so I am juggling several things. Yes. Just a few. Just Plus a few. I chair a couple committees. I'm on the Academic Senate. You know, I I, I don't have any sense of volunteerism at all. No. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, I do. <laughs> and then there's that whole hobby thing that you do and all that right? other stuff. And oh, yeah. Getting people with sticks and running feasts and you know, little things. Things like that. I'm going to backtrack for just a second to let you know 
that when I went to look up that book you love, there's a second book in the series that came out in 2015. There, the, there is. The Feast of the Trickster, Dream Reaver, book number two. So hopefully that is news to you of joyous kind. Actually, I have seen that. I thought it was a separate series on her part. I have it downloaded on my Kindle. Oh, okay. But yeah, no, it's, it's yeah, that book is a great book and I recommend it to anyone. So um, I actually, it's out of print, but you can get it on Kindle. But I have long haunted used bookstores and now online used bookstores because I do that anyway. And every time I find a, a good copy in good condition, I tend to buy it because I give it away. Mm. When I was packing my English library in order to move to California, I was sorting through, I don't know, six, 7,000 books or something. <laughs> there, there are books I only have one of, and there are books that I have two of because you know, it's, it's important enough that you have one to keep and one to lend. There are books that I have three copies of, which is one to keep and one to lend, but the point of having one, a separate one to lend is that sometimes the ones you lend don't come back. And so I had a third one. Yes. Just on standby. I, you know, there are some books that just matter that much. Yes, there are. Maybe someday one of mine will be one of those. But I'd have to write a full you know, novel first. That's a lovely thought, but I, I don't think you have to have a no, full novel to have something that is that good. Because the book I most often give out is a novelette or a novella or possibly a novella itsu, The 13 Clocks by James Thurber, which I love the language in so much of. I bought 40 at one point and gave them all away. Wow. I once bought a whole bunch of uh, Door in the Wall uh, by Marguerite D'Angeli. I love uh, that one. And gave that out because I there used to be this book wholesaler in San Jose that we would get our books from for the program. And... I saw they had it and the price was great. And so I bought it as a 12th night gift for people and just like handed it out to people. And uh, speaking of disability, that has a great representation. So yeah, and I'd love to at some point, when I get to the right point, publish one or two collections of my short stories. Uh, and maybe one or two of the ones that may not find a good market or home would fit beautifully in a collection. Yes, yes, it would. Yes. I have a friend from the Milford writing retreat and she's she sells and resells and just knows how to sell things and so i will send you the link um, where she sells things um it might help wonderful wonderful because you know it's fun i want people to read my stories and that's that's one of my challenge i think that's one of my biggest challenges because i will i put it out there and i'm like you guys need you know read this and i'll put it out on social media or i'll tell my family and and I often hear crickets. And sometimes I find out that people have read my stories and strangers even. And that's very exciting. With the first story I published, I was looking for it once for the link because I didn't have it handy. And I accidentally came across reviews of my story. And I had no idea that no. it had been reviewed. And they were positive. And it was uh -huh. very exciting. People had read it. And liked it. And liked it. It's and really I'm not surprised they were positive reviews. I'm fond of that story. It's a good one. But yeah, it that I think every artist, every writer wants and needs an audience. You need if you're going to put words and commit them and shape them and form them and and finesse them, you you were saying something and you want other people to see it. Yeah, absolutely. 
Oh, yeah, which reminds me, Chaz, don't you have a new reprint coming out? I have a reprint. I love reprint. I'm really interested to see how people react to it 25 years on. I think they'll love it, but, you know, I'm biased. Yes, you like good books. Go ahead and put links to the stories and all these wonderful publications, especially Chaz's, to stories and Chaz's stories and also the newsletters available because we want everyone to get this information along with the other things we mentioned on the website, which is, of course, www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. Thank you, Jennifer, for coming on our show. And we're definitely going to have you back because you started some fascinating subjects and showed me at the very least that you have enough scholarship that I need to listen more to you. (laughs) I would love to listen more to you regardless. This has been so much fun. You can also find Writers Drinking Coffee on Facebook or Twitter. We answer email. We do respond to tweets. And if you have a question for Jennifer, we're happy to pass it along to her so she can answer it because we'll be able to find the hole in her schedule where, where she might actually see it. You have been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is by Deirdre Schween and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Made Milking a Cow and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, both by Michael Enberg. You can hear more from Michael Enberg on manyhatsmusic.com. Our podcast sponsors today are Arm Street from Ukraine. Please go ahead and look them up either through the link and buy a blanket for a refugee if you get a chance. So, please keep writing whatever you have. And hey, thanks for listening.